Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 71 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Mike Mignola, creator of the popular comic book character Hellboy who also appeared in two feature films directed by Guillermo del Toro. Mignola has also collaborated with author Christopher Golden on a trio of illustrated novels entitled Baltimore or the Steadfast Tin Soldier and the Vampire, Joe Golem and the Drowning City, and Father Gaetano's Puppet Catechism. Then stick around after the interview as guest geek Chris Savasco joins us to discuss the life and work of H.P. Lovecraft. All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Mike Mignola. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Okay, so first of all, just how did you decide to start doing prose fiction? Well, I had come up with an idea for a graphic novel, The Baltimore and the Steadfast Tin Soldier, or The Steadfast Tin Soldier, and I just never got around to it. Hellboy, you know, was taking up more and more of my time, and the Baltimore storyline got bigger and bigger. And I realized I was just never going to be able to take a year away from Hellboy to do this thing. But I had told Chris Golden about it. And every once in a while, he would say, well, when are you going to do that vampire thing? And eventually, I just said, what if I just give you all my notes that I had for this thing? And, you know, you write it up as a novel. And he said, yes, which made me suddenly a prose writer. You know, I mean, the Baltimore one was was a really interesting case because I really did know... 85% of the book. It just had two clear holes in it where Chris needed to plug in his own stories. So it was almost like here, insert a short story here and insert a, insert a short story here. Whereas the Joe Golem book we wrote, I thought I had the whole story, but when I actually wrote up my notes and looked at them, I said, oh, you know, this thing's pretty blurry. So that was, was one where Chris's contributed a lot of story content to tie the whole thing together. Whereas the Baltimore one, he was just almost kind of just filling in a few holes. And then Christopher Golden, does he actually do all the text? You, you sort of talk about the ideas and then he does all the text or do you do? Yeah, any we, do we do a lot of phone call stuff. I mean, he'll send me a couple chapters at a time and then, and I'll comb through that and then, you know, just torture the shit out of him. You know, we <laughs> just go back and forth. The, the good thing about working with Chris is he will defer to me on certain things, but if he feels really strongly about something, you know, he'll argue his case. And I, I don't think there were any places where we really got, you know, at cross purposes about stuff. On Joe Golem, I think because Joe Golem was such a loose outline, there was a lot more discussion there about, well, how are we going to fill in this? Or how are we going to tie this to this? So, um, yeah, I think Joe Golem is probably a 50-50 collaboration where, where Baltimore was much more me. The one thing I didn't want to do was draw actual scenes that were taking place in the book. Mostly I did portraits of the characters or and, and I did little small spot illustrations that were mostly meant to provide mood and atmosphere and not spell out, oh, the guy's hitting him, 
that means he's he's standing here and he's hitting this guy over here. I tried not to draw the monsters. I just wanted to create a mood and not tell the reader too much. For a guy who reads fiction, I'm not a big fan of illustrated books. I mean, I like illustration, but it's for a guy reading a book, I don't want an artist telling me this is what these guys look like. So how do you actually know Chris Golden? Oh, God, from way, way back, early, early on the Hellboy stuff, he was doing interviews for some kind of magazine, and he interviewed me, and he was a big Hellboy fan, and he was the first person who suggested, hey, somebody should write Hellboy novels, meaning that he wanted to write Hellboy novels. So he wrote the first couple of Hellboy novels. Uh, and so that first book, uh, Baltimore, uh, you also later adapted that into a comic book series. Um, why did you decide to do that one particular one in both formats? Even I think when we were doing the novel, we were talking about doing a comic because there's a part of the book where the main character is pursuing this vampire. And we'd even said he's probably chasing him all over the world. And while he's chasing him all over the world, he's running into any number of other things. But the novel wasn't about that. The novel was about the beginning and then eventually catching up with the guy. So we just thought, wow, that's a great place to do a comic to cover or uh, other books or whatever. But as comics guys, we're thinking, yeah, it'd be nice if this thing works to do as a comic. So it wasn't a matter of really adapting the novel as much as it was filling in a big missing chunk of the novel. Well, let's talk about your newest book, Father Gaetano's Puppet Catechism. Uh, Could you just sort of tell us what that's about? It's a priest who um, decides to teach orphan boys Bible lessons using puppets that he's made, which is a really bad idea because puppets are scary and puppets do things when people are sleeping and they run around and they kind of get their own ideas about things. We were talking on the phone about something and I was talking about puppets because I often talk about puppets and it seemed like in like a minute Chris said yeah you know it'd be funny blah 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 and we talked back and forth and 99% of this book is entirely Chris and I believe the only reason my name appears first on the book is because graphically it looked better to have my name up there um, so I, it, it is something I'm, I'm actually kind of uncomfortable with because it really is Chris's book with just a few illustrations by me. Okay, and I mean, given the cover art, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that the story involves demonic forces. And between that and Hellboy, I was just wondering, like, what is it about the idea of demonic forces that interests you? And have you ever believed that such things were real? I've never believed that much in that stuff. It doesn't mean I'm that crazy about hanging out in haunted houses. Uh, so I, I guess I believe enough in that stuff that on the one occasion where I did stake at a place that was supposedly haunted, I couldn't wait to get the hell out of there. But yeah, for the most part, my personal beliefs about that stuff don't inform the stuff. I've just always liked monsters. Since I was a little kid, it was always the thing I found interesting. It's always what I wanted to draw. It's always what I wanted to read and so, yeah, I don't know. It's a good question for a therapist, you know, why <laughs> monsters? But I 
tend to not question it. It's, uh, you know, turned out it's what pays the bills. So, uh, you know, that's kind of nice. So I saw you say that when you first told your wife that you wanted to do a comic called Hellboy, she gave you a look like we're always going to live in a studio apartment, aren't we? That's the look. <laughs> That's the one. I still remember it. I had, I guess I had made some noise about creating my own comic. Uh, I'd been working for Marvel and DC for 10 years, had done a little bit of everything. At that time, other guys were you know creating their own books, and everybody was making a million dollars. And And I think... She thought I was going to go come up with Batman, uh, and I had drawn Batman, and I, I toyed with coming out up with kind of a Batman kind of thing. But the more I thought about it, the more I really wanted to draw just what I wanted to draw, and the only name I'd ever come up with was Hellboy. And so when I came out and said, "Yeah, I'm going to do a thing. I've decided what I'm doing. I'm going to do Hellboy," and I think she was like, "Oh, that's not ever going to be Batman." <laughs> But she was great. I mean, she was really encouraging. And in fact, when I did the first series, and it sold okay, certainly didn't set the world on fire, my first thought was, well, then let me run back to DC Comics and do another Batman book. You know, I'll do my commercial books, and then I'll do Hellboy maybe in between my commercial books. And she said, no, why don't you just do another Hellboy right away? So as much as I'm sure... She didn't have a lot of confidence in the Hellboy idea. She did say, give it a chance. But then, I mean, Hellboy has become a big commercial success, right? So do you think that the concept actually was more commercial than you gave her credit for? Or was it just... This oh, it was certainly much more commercial than either of us ever imagined, I'm sure. Uh, I mean, the funniest question I get from people is, well, how did you come up with this commercial franchise? <laughs> well, first off, if you're looking to come up with a commercial franchise, chances are you're not going to call it Hellboy. Mm -hmm. You know, it does limit its potential as a Saturday morning cartoon, as a toy that can be sold in Toys R Us. I mean, I thought the name was cute and funny. Uh, what I guess I wasn't prepared for is how many people would really have trouble with the name Hellboy. So, yeah, I, it's completely a fluke. It's just... For whatever reason, the comic was appealing to, to comics people. It appealed to a broader audience, maybe, than a lot of the regular comics I was doing. Suddenly, I found out I had a lot more women reading the book. I'm not sure why. Uh, maybe because he's not a superhero. Maybe because he's written a little bit more with some humor, and he's a little bit more regular guy, which is just so it's funny that he looks like the devil, but he talks kind of, I hope, I think like a regular guy. Uh, and then certainly, I, you know, you, you got to give a lot of credit to the movie. I, you know, I get really lucky that a very, very talented director happened to be a big fan of the comic. Yeah, actually, when the movie came out, I saw that some theaters refused to screen it because they didn't want it showing at the same time as Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. I have heard many people talk about going to the theater and there was Passion of the Christ playing here and here's the line for Hellboy, you know, and these guys, I think that's hilarious. Yeah, I, I mean, I've heard some of those stories, but it's always like second and third, you know, hand. I, I, you know, and I've heard that there are places where people didn't want to sell the comic, and I've heard there were people protesting this or that, but I've never seen any of that stuff. Again, I've always lived in places like Northern California or New York or LA. So, you know, it's not like I'm living in middle america someplace 
where that kind of stuff tends to go on. So you don't get any angry letters from people or anything like that? No, I've gotten the reverse. I mean, when when the first Hellboy series came out, I got fan mail in the same batch of fan mail. I got a letter from somebody from the Church of Satan, <laughs> and I got a letter from a minister, and they both liked it. And I thought, what am I doing that I'm making both these guys happy? <laughs> so, um, yeah, I just think because it's, because Hellboy is essentially a good guy, uh, and he fights bad guys, it's pretty cut and dry. And I think the humor element does make it go down a lot easier. And it's not really gory, and it doesn't really wallow in Satanism or anything like that. I, I've heard, like, with the movie, a lot of people said, oh, I didn't want to see it because it was called Hellboy, and I thought it was going to be scary or it was going to be violent or it was going to be satanic or whatever it was and then you know but anybody who's seen the movie goes oh no that was cute actually i mean speaking of movies it's funny i've watched a bunch of interviews with you and you've been involved in these various film projects and fans always want to know what your artistic choices were mm -hmm. and you sort of have to explain that you actually had very minimal involvement in all of these projects is that is that a fair assessment well i mean i've had minimal involvement in some things I, but on the Hellboy stuff, I was heavily involved, certainly in the, the design stages, certainly on the first film. Uh, I spent the same amount of time on the first film as I spent on the second film. I think the difference is on the second film, I was very involved, but most of my involvement doesn't show in the film. Whereas I think in, a lot of, in the first film, there's quite a bit that I can say, I did this, I did this, I came up with this. I, I wrote that line of dialogue. You know, the second film was much more a del Toro picture. So a lot of my influence kind of, it's, it's there, but it's, it's buried under layers of other people's stuff. The one I always have to say, I mean, it, it's always in my bio and a lot of people pick up on it. The, the fact that I worked on Francis Coppola's Dracula film. That's one where I, I, I was literally involved in that film for about a day and a half. So that's where a lot of people, certain interviews and things or certain articles have given me credit for a lot of stuff on that picture that I had nothing to do with. Mm -hmm. Well, and The Hobbit as well, right? And, and again, The Hobbit, I was on The Hobbit for 10 days, but that was the Del Toro version of The Hobbit. And to my knowledge, visually, nothing of the Del Toro version of The Hobbit survives into the Peter Jackson version of The Hobbit. I was really a fan of Hellboy 2, and particularly the Prince Nuada character, but is it fair to, is that basically a del Toro character? Is he drawn from the comics at all? Uh, he's not. He's not drawn from the comic at all, even though there are parallels in with the second film, I think, to the last big arc I did of Hellboy, this whole war between the fairies and, and, and the regular world. That idea was in this last arc of Hellboy, which actually I, I'm not even sure Del Toro's ever read, but it's certainly what was in my mind when we were started working on that second picture. When we started on the second picture, the original idea was to adapt, go back to the comic and pick a story from the comic and adapt it to the film. But that first film strayed so far away from the comic book roots that there was really no way to go back to the comic. So what we had to do is come up with a sequel 
to the film as opposed to, you know, another comic book adaptation. So, um, yeah, the, the Prince character, uh, you know, I, that was one of those organic couple of days where Del Toro and I banged around a lot of ideas. We came up with the original story together. So I don't know who came up with the idea of this Prince character, but certainly when it, once he got fleshed out and the visuals and stuff, you know, that was all Del Toro. I mean, it was interesting with that character, I thought, because I almost liked him more than Hellboy in a way, because he reminded me kind of of myself. He's, he's very idealistic and driven and uh, sensitive, whereas Hellboy in that movie, he kind of reminds me of, like, all the guys where the girls prefer him. And I'm like, wait, what does she even see in that guy? Am I just crazy? Or do you? <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, I, I like, I mean, again, when I do villains, I have to understand the villain. and. I'm glad the prince came off that way because certainly that was the way I imagined the prince. The idea of a guy who he was completely in the right, but he was going to take it too far. And I always went back to the American Indians and I said, it's basically you've taken our land, you're building shopping malls all over our sacred land, and you want us just to go down quietly. And no, I'm going to fight back. And the idea was, what if Geronimo had access to nuclear weapons? You know, would he use them? Or was he going to keep fighting out in the desert and getting picked off one, one guy at a time? So that was the basic idea, was his cause is just, it's just how far he's going to take it. And yeah, I mean, the Hellboy character in that second picture is so far away from my version of Hellboy, because you had the whole love interest thing, which had morphed into this kind of first-year marriage squabbling kind of thing, which is totally alien to my character. So, yeah, the Hellboy character did, did quite a few things in the second film that my Hellboy wouldn't do. Uh, in fact, there there is a moment in one of the meetings where I said, well, Hellboy wouldn't do that, and Del Toro said... Your Hellboy wouldn't, mine would. And that was one of those real, oh, that's right. I'm working on a Del Toro movie. I've gotten pretty far away from working on a regular Hellboy thing. Uh, yeah, so, you know, lots of our listeners probably only know Hellboy from the movies. Uh, what are some of the other ways in which the, the comics differ from what you know people see on the screen? Well, I mean, my Hellboy is much older. I mean, well, I guess they're both the same age. It's just my character matured somewhere back in the 50s and 60s. And Del Toro's Hellboy, even though they arrived, both arrived on Earth in the 40s, somehow Del Toro's Hellboy is still a lovesick teenager. My Hellboy is modeled on my father in some way, a guy who's, been in the Korean War, and he's traveled, and he's done a lot of stuff, and he's kind of got a been there, done that attitude. He's also, he's been in the world, and Del Toro's change was to have Hellboy bottled up in a room and mooning over the girl he can't have. And my Hellboy, there, there were just no girl problems. That element of the character was completely not in the comic. The one thing I'm really happy about 
is that for the most part, the people who are fans of the comic, despite all those big changes I just mentioned, they're fans of the movie also. You know, it's like Del Toro didn't think twice about making all those changes to the character for the film. It was only when the film was about to come out that he started kind of saying, gee, I wonder if the fans are going to lynch us. (laughs) And it's like, yeah, I just hope that they don't lynch me before I can point them in your direction because that shit wasn't my idea. (laughs) But uh, no, for the most part, it, it went down just fine with my audience. And I've only actually, I've only had one guy come up to me and say, which is a weird thing for somebody to say, come up to me and say, yeah, I discovered Hellboy from the film, and then I read the comic, and I like the movie better. I'm sure there are people who feel that way, but I've only actually had one guy come up to me and say it. So, like, what are some of the craziest things that happened to Hellboy in the comics? Because I, I was reading, like, he travels to the bottom of the ocean and is interacting with mermaids and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I... I I love writing about the real world. I'm not crazy about drawing the real world. So at some point, I did shift Hellboy in a much more fantasy direction. You know, he was an agent for the BPRD, the Bureau for Paranormal Research and Defense, and he was going on all these missions all over the world, and that was all fine. And then I just had him quit, and the first thing I did was chuck him to the bottom of the ocean. And I really thought, "Uh uh-oh. I've turned a corner. I'm going to lose my audience. He's not fighting Nazis. Now he's fighting mermaids. But just for me as an artist, I wanted a lot more freedom with my environment. So, um, yeah, that was pretty weird. And then, you know, I, when I stopped drawing the book and was just writing the book, that's when he finally got a love interest because I found an artist who's much better at drawing women than I am. And then I did this giant storyline where we find out he's actually um, a direct descendant of King Arthur. So he's actually the legitimate king of England. That was pretty weird. That was a pretty weird one. And once you've done that, the only thing left to do is kill him off. So, that, you know, I did that. And then he's in the afterlife or something. Now he's in hell, which is, and I'm drawing the book because hell is much more fun to draw than New Jersey or <laughs> someplace else. Nobody's going to write me a letter and say, you know, you said he was in this place, but what you drew isn't really that place, and they don't really have a castle there, and blah, blah, blah. Nobody's going to tell me, you know, your hell, it's not quite right. And no, <laughs> it's my hell. It's my version of hell. I get to draw whatever I want. So as someone who sort of works on the darker side of the comic book spectrum, uh, do you have any recommendations for what you would consider the scariest comics? For my money, the best comic book series ever done that was really smart and really scary was, well, it's hard to say scary, but really it had some disturbing stuff in it. The old Tomb of Dracula series by uh, Marv Wolfman and Gene Colan. Gene could ground stuff in the real world, but he could do mood and atmosphere, and he's one of the very few guys I've ever seen who was able to draw stuff that I found really disturbing without being just like wildly abstract the guy could just draw scary disturbing images they did another series for dc called night force which i dimly remember it but i do remember there was an image of some kind of ghost thing in there that i won't say it scared the crap out of me but i still remember it and it was really disturbing and unfortunately So few people remember that stuff, and it's not the kind of stuff the comic book audience wants. 
DC was going to collect it into a book, but I guess they got such bad orders, they couldn't even do a book collection of it. But uh, So you'd have to round up the individual comics, which I really should do one day. But yeah, the Tomb of Dracula series has been reprinted a few times, and that is my favorite long-running horror comic. So you said that you prefer Victorian literature to more contemporary stuff. What is it about that type of material that you find more appealing? Well, a lot of it is the time period. There's an old-fashionedness to that kind of literature. I mean, I like ghosts. I like more or less traditional vampires. and we're, I like monster stories. And I think when you get past the pulp magazine era, you know, I, I really think H.P. Lovecraft changed horror literature radically. And it kind of put the final stake in the traditional vampire and, and suddenly all werewolves and things kind of got kind of quaint. And, and it became much more abstract. And, and I like some of that stuff a lot, but I like a simpler world. You get much past the 20s, 30s, you know, I, I just don't have that much interest in the modern world. I like fog and wagon wheels and guys on horseback. I mean, a contemporary author who it seems like might appeal to you is China Mievo. Have you ever read any of his work? Yeah, I have read China. And yeah, I like his work a lot. A lot of it is too fantasy for me. But I have, I, I've read China stuff. I actually illustrated a, a fascinating story that he wrote years ago. What, what was the story? God, I can't remember what it was called, but it was this fascinating story about streets that come and go. Yeah. And it's called people a, uh... noticing that this street was here and now it wasn't here. And, and like an expedition goes down a street. I think guys tethered on a rope go down a street and vanish. Because uh, I know the illustration was some old buildings with this flapping end of a rope. Yeah the, yeah, the title of that is it's called Report on Certain Events in London. Yeah. And it's it's such an interesting story because having lived in New York City, having spent time in places like London, you see where a story like that comes from because you walk down a street and you go, That wasn't here. Mm -hmm. This I'd swear this alley wasn't here six months ago. So I saw that you were reading the anthology of the Weird, edited by Anne and Jeff Vandermeer, uh, which is this Massive retrospective of weird fiction. Um, what do you think of that? I thought it was great. What little I've read. I mean, I bought the book, and I love it, and it's on my shelf, but I had to then buy it on Kindle so I could actually read it <laughs> because it's too damn big. It's too damn big to sit in my chair and, and, and hold it on my lap. That's another one. It's two volumes, Dark Water and Dark Water 2, where they're pulling all these short stories from different cultures because I'm fairly well-versed in the Western writers, but you get something like Jeff and Ann's book and, and these Dark Water series, and you're pulling Asian stories and Indian stories, all these different things in there, and it just gives such a great perspective on supernatural literature. I saw that you've actually you, you've done some work adapting pulp writers like Robert E. Howard and Fritz Leiber. Uh, what's it like working with those stories? I actually wrote a Conan story, uh, and it was a nightmare. I went through my big Robbie Howard period when I was in high school, and I loved that Conan stuff. 
and I thought it would be fun to write it, and I actually wrote one based, it was a three-issue comic, and it was actually based on one of his unfinished story outlines. So it had beginning, middle, and end, and I thought, this would be great, I'll just expand it. But the character has no sense of humor. And he actually does say things like, by Crom, which is just so silly to actually write. <laughs> uh, yeah, that story was unexpectedly a nightmare to do. Uh, I think it turned out okay, but it was rough. The Liber stuff, fortunately, I didn't have to write. And Liber's world was so much fun. I mean, a lot of it was city stuff. And I was living in New York City, so walking around New York, which I think was Liber's inspiration for his fantasy world, was exciting. I was in exactly the right place to draw that city. And a lot of it is based on buildings in New York City. And then, you know, the stuff that didn't pl- take place in the city, it was just such a wonderful, exotic thing. I'm, I, you know, I'm much better, I think, or more comfortable drawing these kind of fantasy worlds. I don't necessarily read that kind of stuff, but I like that liberty to create a world. And those books have a lot of humor in them. I mean, as opposed to, say, Conan. Oh, yeah. I, there, there was a lot of humor, and Howard Chaikin wrote the scripts and Howard I think is very sympathetic to the way Liber wrote so when Howard added stuff it still had that same kind of sarcastic humor that the Liber stuff had I wish I was a couple years further along in my career I could have done a better job but of my pre-Hellboy stuff I can actually still look at that stuff and say yeah you know I did all right not a big fan of my early work uh, so what do you think about the way that uh, weird fiction writers like Lovecraft have been adapted to comics? You know, I just haven't seen it done very well. Uh, I think there's certain things about Lovecraft that are so cliche. The big tentacled monster is so cliche. Uh, so much of the comic stuff I've seen just kind of reduces Lovecraft to the same gag of, oh, no, the big rubber monster is going to show up. Uh, I'm sure I'm, you know, missing stuff. Uh, I know Richard Corbin's done some stuff that's really beautiful. But so much of Lovecraft relies on mood. And if guys just turn it into the big monster cosmic universe stuff, they're really only getting part of Lovecraft. And I just think the mood and the atmosphere of those stories, it's comics is not the easiest place to do that. I also don't think it's been done on film. So, um, yeah, the great Lovecraft adaptation, I think, is still to be done. Well, and I'm not going to do it. I, I was actually thinking that you might be perfect to do it because Lovecraft often doesn't describe his monsters because it's scarier, leaving it up to the imagination. Uh, and, and your work, it's so full of these shadows that keep things so mysterious. Uh, and it seems like well, that would be... I mean, and, Times in, in my stuff where I've dealt with these kind of Lovecraftian type things, certainly the fact that I can't draw a whole figure without throwing half of it into shadow, that does help. I, certainly there's a Lovecraft influence in my stuff, but rather than do an adaptation, I, I just assume do my own stuff and then steer people back when they say, oh, where'd you get that idea? You go, oh, go read H.P. Lovecraft. There are times where I've really wanted to adapt certain things. And certainly, it's nice to be able to adapt somebody who's a really good writer because when you've got all these words, you don't have to embarrass yourself writing your own words. 
But, um, you know, at this point, I kind of got my hands full doing doing my stuff. And the beauty of adapting the folk tales and the fairy tale stuff that I'm using a lot in Hellboy is I've got traditional old stories that I can pick and choose the elements of, but I can also play real fast and loose, which I just really wouldn't be terribly comfortable with adapting a piece of literature. You also worked on a Lovecraft Batman crossover called The Doom That Came to Gotham. Um, what was it like doing that? That was a weird one. It was a, it was a strange project, and my memory of it is really kind of blurry. I do remember that an artist slash writer came to me, and he was going to do this project, and just wanted me. I think he wanted me to co-write it with him. And I think he started drawing the book, and I'm not really sure what happened. But at some point, he was no longer on this project, and I inherited this project, which was his idea. Yeah, I mean, that's the closest I've come to doing Lovecraft, where I actually use the Necronomicon and names from Lovecraft and stuff like that. I always forget about this project because DC didn't keep it in print. Do you think that uh, Lovecraft plus Batman is a weird combination, or is there some natural synchronicity there? I mean, I, I don't know anything about Batman and really couldn't care less about Batman. So, you know, putting Batman in a world where there's monsters, you know, it makes Batman a lot more appealing to me. I, I know a lot more about Lovecraft than I know about Batman. So I'm sure that Batman book had a lot more to do with Lovecraft than it had to do with Batman. I co-wrote one issue of Batman, you know, before I did Hellboy. I came up with the plot, but a friend of mine came in and wrote the actual script because I just didn't know anything about Batman. And I made it just a traditional ghost-vampire kind of story. And actually, that story led to me doing Hellboy, because I, I loved making up this story, I loved what I had done with it, and I just thought, yeah, but do I want to make up more stories like that and try to shoehorn characters I don't care about or understand, like Batman or Wolverine or whoever the hell it is? Or if I know the kind of stories I want to do... Why don't I just make up my own guy? So that's how Hellboy came about. Huh, well, that's funny if you don't feel any affinity for Batman, because I thought that was the only superhero they would let you draw with your well, style. Well, I, I, had, I had drawn a lot of superheroes. I think Batman was the only superhero that the audience liked me drawing. Batman's easy. I mean, for me, for a guy who's all about shadows, Batman is one of those characters who looks better the less you see of him. If Hellboy didn't work out, that was always going to be my fallback position. I, I knew at the time, I knew a lot of people at DC Comics. I figured I could get other gigs doing Batman. But Batman, for the most part, lacks the supernatural element, which I really wanted to do ghosts and monsters and things like that. And Batman comes close with some of those characters. But... um yeah, I'm kind of lucky I got away with this one Batman ghost story I got to do. Speaking of Lovecraft, I mean, I saw that Guillermo del Toro was working on a film adaptation of At the Mountains of Madness. Were you following that project at all? Yeah, I mean, I, not really. I was, I was never involved in that. I did read the script at one point, and I know that's, you know, as long as I've known him, that's been one of his dream projects. Uh, and actually, the couple days I spent with him when we were trying to come up with the story for Hellboy 2, at that same, you know, that same couple of days, he was working on Mountains of Madness. So I think 
50% of our Hellboy 2 conversation was he and his other writing partner working on Mountains of Madness. He was kind of like running into one room to work on Mountains of Madness and then running into the other room to come in and work on Hellboy. Did you get any sense of what kind of a movie it would have been? I mean, obviously, it's been a rough picture to get made. He wanted to be very traditional. He wanted to set it in in the the proper time period, which is going to scare studios. And of of all Lovecraft's stuff, it's the least human of all his stories. It's really about guys exploring and discovering this gigantic Lovecraftian universe and then running away from it. So, I mean, I'm sure he would have done a great job, but I can see studios saying, who's going to go see this? Especially if you're going to want $150 million or $200 million or whatever it was going to be to make it. That's a big number for a movie about Arctic explorers and giant jellyfish. I mean, you mentioned that you don't think Lovecraft movies have been particularly successful. Are there any that you think are they're kind of flawed, but they're worth checking out? There's one called Dagon, yeah, yeah. which uh, is, even though it's called Dagon, it's it's kind of uh, the Doom the Kim, no. The, the Shadow of Rinsmith. Shadow of Rinsmith, where it's a lot of guys running around in a spooky town. And what I think really works for that one is the town itself is spooky. And it's it's got mood and it's got tension. And it's got a lot of shadowy figures with kind of flipper arms that you don't see too clearly. And I think, unfortunately, where that movie falls apart is when you get a really good look at the monsters. Then it kind of becomes a big rubber octopus. But the stuff where you were just getting these kind of mutant, half-Lovecraftian guys skittering around to this god-awful Spanish, I think it was Spanish, town in the rain for atmosphere and everything, I thought that worked really well. Like, I kind of wonder why they would have changed the name of the movie to Dagon when, you know, Shadow Over Innsmouth is actually an awesome title. The more I see in the movie business, the less I understand about hmm. it. I have no idea what what goes on with that stuff. So the movie business is kind of like the Necronomicon, just if you stare at it too long, you just go insane. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess. I mean, I, I you know, Del Toro, on the first movie, all the meetings where he was trying to get Hellboy made, he said, I'm never going to have you in any of those meetings because you literally wouldn't survive them. <laughs> and then when Chris and I were involved with trying to sell the Baltimore novel as a movie, that's when I was in some of those meetings. And Del Toro's right. You know, I, I, it's, it is, it's, it's hard to be in the room and listen to some of these suggestions. And maybe this is lazy on my part, but I've got other things I could be doing. So for the most part, when we sell a book as a movie, I kind of go, well, now it's theirs. And I hope they don't do too horrible job with it. But they paid me, so I'm going to take my money, I'm going to go home, and I'm work on my comic. And if the director wants my involvement, that's great. But you can't lose sight of the fact that at the end of the day, they're going to do what they're going to do. On the first Hellboy movie, there were a lot of things that Del Toro wanted to do that I talked him out of. 
on the second Hellboy film, there were a lot of things I tried to talk him out of, and I couldn't. He knew what he wanted to make, and I just had to kind of suck it up and say, well, okay, it's your movie. You know, there's nothing I can do about it. And then just finally, are there any other new or upcoming projects that you'd like to mention? I'm doing the, the Hellboy in Hell stuff, which is taken up. It's taking way longer than I thought. And since Hellboy in Hell isn't a miniseries, it's an ongoing series, you know, I, I don't even foresee other stuff. I want to I want to find more time to just draw pictures. But, you know, the only comic book work I have planned is uh, is the Hellboy in Hell stuff. Are you planning on doing any more collaborations with Christopher Golden? I shouldn't say no. We don't have anything else in the works. We haven't we haven't talked about anything. And you know, I have a love hate thing with book illustration. Like I mentioned before, as a reader, I'm not a big fan of illustrated books. And I think I've done that kind of thing as well as I know how to do it. I'm kind of going through a phase where I'm looking at what I've done and saying, yeah, that was nice, but really. I'm a comic book artist, and there's a lot of stuff I want to do in comics. So I'm looking to do as few things as possible that take me away from comics. Going through that whole movie period, suddenly you do it. You're working on movies, you're working on animated shows, you're illustrating books. I spent about six, seven years there where I wasn't drawing comics, and you do kind of go, well, yeah, you know, I'd like to do a children's book, and I'd like to do this, and I'd like to do that. And there's so many different things you suddenly can do. You've got the connections or people you know or at various publishers and stuff. There's this kind of world of possibilities. And then you have to kind of, for me anyway, I had to kind of rein it in and say, yeah, but you know, what do you really want to do? I made up a comic where I could draw whatever I want with no editorial, no editorial interference or parameters. I got a publisher that will let me do whatever I want. Why don't I just go do that and create a body of work? So, yeah, I'm, I've got so much of my own stuff I want to do. I just kind of like to do that. All right, great. So, Mike Mignola, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. My pleasure. Thank you. And that was our interview. So, thanks so much to Mike Mignola for joining us on the show. And as we mentioned for our panel today, we'll be discussing the life and works of legendary horror author H.P. Lovecraft. And as we're recording this, something came up and John couldn't make it. But fortunately, I won't have to talk about Lovecraft all by myself, because we're joined by a special guest geek, Chris Savasco. From 2003 to 2009, he was the editor of Paradox Magazine, which published both historical fiction and speculative fiction with a period setting. His short fiction has appeared in Black Static, Leading Edge, and The Field Guide to Surreal Botany and is forthcoming in the Prime Books anthology of Civil War ghost stories, Shades of Blue and Gray. He's also written an alternate history novel about 1066, and a historical thriller exploring the legend of Lady Godiva, both of which he's currently shopping around to agents. So, Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. Glad to be here. And I think we're just going to start out and talk about how we first discovered Lovecraft. So I'll just uh, start out. I mean, I actually came to Lovecraft fairly late. I didn't really start reading the stories until I was in college. And the first awareness, sort of proto-awareness I had of Lovecraft, I remember, was I read a review of the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game in Dragon Magazine, you know, when I was in high school or something. And it really struck me how, you know, ordinary Dungeons & Dragons, the characters gain experience points and go up in levels and get more powers and skills and 
spells and stuff. And they said that the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game was the exact opposite, that you start off with these characters and they just become more and more disabled and insane throughout the game and eventually either get committed to a insane asylum or die, and then you start over with a healthy character and the same thing happens over and over again. And that just really kind of struck me. But I just still didn't know anything about Lovecraft, really, at that point. And then when I was uh, in college, I went to the Clarion Writers Workshop, and uh, one of my classmates was Tim Pratt. And he had a, one of those Miskatonic University t-shirts with a, you know, where the mascot is a sort of octopus-headed monster. And I, I, just, I just found that weirdly fascinating. And I was like, what, what is, I don't get it. What is that t-shirt? And he sort of explained about Lovecraft and stuff. So then when I got back to school, I bought... I guess for, the first thing I actually bought was not actually by Lovecraft, but it was that anthology Tales of the Cthulhu Mythos, which are different authors writing in the tradition of Lovecraft. And then I liked that, and so I went and I ordered, I think it was Penguin maybe, the S.T. Joshi edited Call of Cthulhu and other weird stories. Mm -hmm. And the first story in there is Dagon. And I just started reading that, and I just loved that. And I was kind of hooked from there. I came to it even later than you did. Um, I had always, well, no, I won't say always, but I mean, for a long time, I had been vaguely aware of the name uh, Lovecraft, and I had heard, you know, come across references to the Cthulhu mythos, not really ever quite knowing what any of it meant. You know, I mean, I, I think I remember there was an episode of the cartoon of the Ghostbusters where that featured Cthulhu, actually, and I remember coming across that. And then uh, one day I had a summer job uh, for about five summers or so when I was in high school and college uh, as a library page. It, they had, you know, one of these paperback book exchanges and there was someone had dropped off a six book set of sort of these 1970s Valentine editions of like, you know, the collected works of Lovecraft basically with these ridiculously creepy goofy covers like each of them has like a you know a more horrific looking face on it than the one before these sort of surreal looking faces and i had those sitting on my shelf for probably another probably another decade unread um they just kind of like i thought they looked interesting and i picked them up and brought them home and then forgot about them and then just one day randomly i i was probably close to 30 um and i just picked up the first one just looking for something to read one day and tore through all six of those books, you know, in the space of a week, because I just, I get, you know, like you, it just sort of hit me like a, like a lightning bolt out of the blue. Like I, I just, you know, it just sort of blew me away. Well, it's funny you mentioned the, the real Ghostbusters cartoon, because when I started reading Lovecraft, finally, it was almost like discovering the Rosetta Stone or some <laughs> long lost relative or something. Cause in hindsight, I could see all these things I had known and loved throughout my whole life were all, <laughs> riffing on Lovecraft and I'd never known the source. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, I could think back and be like, oh my God, the real Ghostbusters, that was a Lovecraft thing. And you know, Quest for Glory 4, that was a Lovecraft thing. And I mean just so many things. Like the Alien movies and Geiger's paintings even to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. You know, a very recent thing is is uh George R. R. Martin's Ice and Fire books. Mm -hmm. How, you know, you've got the the drowned god of the of the Iron Man. Yeah. And I mean, like, and it's not even just like, you know, a, a casual similarity. I mean, just even those those words that the, that they use in the book, you know, what's dead may never die is is almost like, you know, it's it's obviously an homage to the to the that is not dead, which can eternal lie, 
and with strange eons, even death may die that Lovecraft wrote and called Cthulhu. It's, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it just pervades so many things in, in culture. Yeah. I think we should talk about what makes Lovecraft so important. Cause I would say he's the most important horror writer ever. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly in terms of the influence he's had, uh, I, I, the only other names that would come to mind would be, you know, someone like Poe, you know, and Poe certainly had a huge influence on Lovecraft himself. But, you know, I think in the absence of Lovecraft as sort of a, a gateway between Poe and sort of modern or not even modern, but, you know, all of 20th century's horror and, and weird fiction. Yeah, I, I don't know that Poe's influence would have ended up being as great as it otherwise was. Well, and I think Poe is arguably a better writer, may even um, be more influential. I, you could argue that. But I think what makes Lovecraft so important is his cosmic perspective. I mean, it was sort of the, the fundamental human fear in yeah. pre-modern times was the fear that your soul would be damned for all eternity. And mm -hmm. all or basically all horror was somehow about that fear. But I think that what haunts the modern age is this idea that humanity is just incredibly insignificant in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. And the universe is massive and incomprehensible and indifferent. And yeah, I mean, it's that fear of the indifference rather than a fear of some, some sort of evil that is basically what, yeah, I mean, Lovecraft more or less kind of created that out of whole cloth in terms of fictional approaches to our... I think that what's so scary about the Cthulhu mythos is that it's not disprovable in the way that a lot of horror stories are. Like, I have, I have no belief whatsoever in vampires or werewolves. Things like ghosts require belief in a soul, which I, I totally reject. And even if there are things like werewolves running around, I mean, there would be 10,000 videos of them on YouTube. You know what I mean? <laughs> but just the idea that there are monsters beyond our comprehension out there in outer space and some of your neighbors know this and will kill you in the name of these monsters mm -hmm. is really scary and mm -hmm. totally believable i think we should we should just maybe give a little bit of biographical background on lovecraft maybe for people who aren't familiar with it so he he grew up in providence rhode island yeah and his father was committed to a mental institution when he was very, very young. young. Sort of syphilis-induced uh, mental illness. And so Lovecraft was raised by his mother and his aunts and his grandfather. His grandfather had been quite wealthy, but the family kind of fell on hard times mm -hmm. when Lovecraft was very young. And so he actually, he was quite poor his entire life. Well, I don't think it, it really had had a chance to impact him until after he sort of was on his own, actually. I mean, I think while he was growing up, I don't think he had any real sense of poverty. I think, you know, there was still enough left in the coffers that he was kept comfortable. But, um, you know, it was very quickly being used up and wasn't being replaced. And by the time he was, you know, a young adult and then an adult out on his own, there was basically nothing left. More, more so than poverty, I think what marked his early childhood and his middle childhood years was, you know, at first he was being raised by his mother and only later by his aunts after his mother died. And his mother 
perhaps in part because she had kind of a breakdown herself over the, you know, the loss of her husband and, and I'm not sure what, but she became a very sort of smothering, overbearing, uh, sort of figure who kept, you know, H.P. Lovecraft extremely sheltered from the world, kept him, you know, sort of in a, in a glass bubble, you know, and, uh, and also was very, I think unintentionally cruel, but rather cruel to him, you know, spoke in his presence about how hideous a creature he was and how, you know, how poorly, how completely ill-equipped he was to basically deal with anything in life. And so that sort of, um, he came to believe that, I think, um, for much of his life. And I think it was an insecurity that plagued him throughout the rest of his life. I guess I was getting at the idea that he was raised in this household with upper class pretensions. Yes. Um, uh, sort of aristocratic pretensions, but that reflected a, a reality that, that no longer uh, maintained. So he, he always, I think he always had this idea that things used to be better, that, that the mm-hmm. world was just constantly getting worse. I, I get the sense he, he may have had sort of psychosomatic illness um, in, yeah, in part, yeah. but it seems pretty clear he also had legitimate physical ailments, including he had these sort of night terrors which is the sort of condition where you you're kind of awake but you're still dreaming and you're paralyzed and you visualize sort of malignant presences looming over you and 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 yeah Lovecraft was plagued by by these sort of night gaunts I think he called them his entire yeah. life and then I think the other big influence in his life would be that his grandfather had this big library in their house yeah up in the attic really and so since Lovecraft was was sick all the time and didn't go to school a lot. He just spent all his time in the library. And he was kind of a, an autodidact, sort of a prodigy, and mm-hmm. was studying astronomy and ancient history and ancient languages and, and all these things uh, from a very young age. You know, so actually, for, for the short amount of time that he lived, I mean, because he died fairly young in 1937, you know, so what, I guess he would have been about 45, 47 years old or something like that. He actually, in that short time that he actually was writing, put out an incredible amount of material. I mean, he wrote it because it's not only, you know, his own works, but he was also ghostwriting an incredible amount of work for others, you know, including people like Harry Houdini. Well, but it's still a fairly small body of work, though. I mean, especially when, you, when we would say, well, he's arguably the most important horror writer ever. That's based on a fairly small body of work. I mean, a handful of books of material. At most, right? Well, I mean, you know, I, I don't know the exact number, but I mean, it's certainly something around 50 or 60 short stories, you know, and some of them are, are actually quite long, you know, bordering on, well, not quite novel length, but novella. Yeah, I mean, I get, you know, it's not, it's not a huge amount of work, but. Well, but Ant, he never wrote a, a full length novel. He never either. Did, no. I mean, At the Mountains of Madness, I think, is his longest piece, which is maybe inching toward novel length, but not, I don't think, quite getting there. And I think it's really interesting to consider that he's a, a sort of a contemporary of Hemingway uh, mm-hmm. when you think of how different their styles are. Uh, Lovecraft's style feels very 19th century. Well, I mean, everything about his life, you know, he, he felt, and I think others probably felt too that knew him, that he was sort of a, a person born out of time. You know, I mean, he, he did, as you mentioned earlier, sort of was always kind of looking back to what he thought was not only a better time in his own immediate family's financial history, but I mean, just 
with the world. I mean, you know, with everything, with architecture. I mean, he was so fascinated by architecture and, and so appalled when he saw sort of new modes of architecture encroaching on what he saw as the, as the more beautiful lines and, sym- and symmetry and, and styles of, of the past. You know, as, as anyone who's read his work knows, I mean, he insisted on using the more archaic or the more British spellings of words rather than the American spellings for things. And I mean, just everything like I, I think he truly regretted that the revolution ever <laughs> happened, you know, that, that we weren't still part of the monarchy. Um, he just sort of looked backwards at the past with these sort of rose colored glasses as a time that he really wanted to be a part of. And I think another thing it's important to say is that he, he knew his weird fiction inside and out. He had actually authored a book called the uh, supernatural horror in literature, which mm-hmm. is this, I think for the, at the time was a pretty exhaustive survey of pretty much any piece of weird fiction that had ever been written, you know, with, with his opinions about it. And, this is something he took very seriously, and uh, you know he was a, you would say a leading expert in in the field. And he continued to maintain, obviously, you know, close contacts with the, all of the major players who were writing weird fiction, you know, at the time that he was. You know, I mean, he he corresponded with Robert e. Howard and Clark Ashton Smith, and and I mean, and that's really the reason that anyone has ever heard of him today, is because he developed this circle of friends slash protégés who uh sure. who kept his work or who put you know basically put his work in print uh after he F- yeah. founded arkham house for basically for that purpose mm-hmm. to, to publish posthumously all his collected works uh and also it's important to note that they they all were so interested in the stuff he was doing that they wanted to write their own stories set you know using mm-hmm. his names and ideas and things which he encouraged which yeah. started this tradition of, of other authors appropriating Lovecraft's mythology for their own uses. Yeah, it was like a shared world project, basically. Mm-hmm. So, Chris, which of the Lovecraft stories uh, are your personal favorites? I, I actually don't think I could pick my absolute favorite, but I mean, you know, the ones that I, I keep coming back to that stick with me the most. I mean, I love The Rats in the Walls. I love The Outsider, um, The Music of Eric Zahn. The, the first of his works that I read actually was The Call of Cthulhu. And I think perhaps because it was my first, you know, I, that always has a special place for me. I love Cool Air. I love Whisper in the Darkness, uh, The Dunwich Horror. I actually really love The Case of Charles Dexter Ward, which is probably his, lo- his second longest book after At the Mountains of Madness. I mean, that's almost, an, you know, an approaches novel length as well. Um, you know, th- those are some of the ones that first come to mind. I mean, there's so many others that I really love. I mean, you know, some of his stories don't work as well as others for me. I- I've never been a huge fan of his more fantasy-driven stories. You know, the ones like The Doom That Came to, to Sarnath or The the Silver Key, the- those ones that were sort of more in the Dunsanian or Burroughs style or, you know, what have you. Critics have sort of divided his stories, I think, into three broad categories. You have the kind of the early macabre stories you have the lord dunsany you know like dream quest of unknown kadath kind of stories yeah, those, yeah and right. then you have the the later more developed horror cthulhu mythos stories mm-hmm. and yeah the dream quest kind of stories don't do anything for me at all and some some people love them but you know i i'm I, i'm not necessarily a huge fan of even the underlying material that he was sort of emulating there so you know i just think that's not my thing uh-huh. but yeah i mean though 
Th- those, are, those are the ones that come to mind. And, I mean, there's others too. The Colorado Space is great. Dreams in the Witch House. I just love Brown Jenkins. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What, what are some of your favorites? If I haven't already stolen all the good ones. <laughs> well, no, I mean, it's fun. You haven't even mentioned my favorite one yet, which is What's Shadow that? over Innsmouth. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, that, that one and Call of Cthulhu uh, are my favorites. But it's not even any particular Lovecraft story for me that's my favorite. It's his world that is so fascinating. And all his stories basically are all par- set in the same universe. More or less, um, yeah. And I have serious problems with the plots. And a lot of times the twists are really obvious, I think. Just to take an example of that would be like Pickman's model, mm-hmm. where there's an artist and he's painting these grotesque monsters. And then the big twist is that these are life portraits and the monsters really exist. And it's just beyond my comprehension how anyone could not see that one coming. And I think that's maybe why Shadow over Innsmouth is my favorite is because that one has the best plot, I think. It sort of marries this fascinating world with a, a plot I think is just genuinely mysterious and compelling. And there's a twist at the end that works perfectly. And I think there's a lot of truth in what you're saying. I mean, I, I, to me, I think it's mostly about the mood that he creates. You know, he casts a spell over me so that I, I feel like I'm starting to lose my mind as well, just, you know, along with the characters in the books, because he just is so adept at making the reader feel uneasy. You know, I mean, there's this just disturbing um, vibe that builds and builds and builds throughout his stories. And it's just like you're just sitting there with dread creeping through your your body as you read the, as you read these works. I mean, at least I, I am when I read them. And I, to me, that's what's really the thrill of reading Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. And the stories, they have s- such authority to them. You know, the, these names like, like Cthulhu and you just feel like you've heard them before. I mean, maybe it's because it's because of the real Ghostbusters or whatever. But <laughs> right, well. I, I think even even if you hadn't watched the real Ghostbusters, they just there's just something about the way he presented the, the Necronomicon and the. There's this sense of verisimilitude in his work, because one of his tools that he employs is he throws these these things into the stories like the Necronomicon, like, like all of his, you know, entities like Cthulhu and various other tomes that he's created and locations and whatnot. But he sprinkles them in there along with actual references to history, to architecture, to philosophy, to, uh, you know, spirituality. And so they're all sort of jumbled in there together and, and they all start to feel just as real because, you know, because he does it the way he does it. You know, I think that's a, that's a part of it, too. And he has all sorts of, like, clippings from newspaper, you know, newspaper yeah. clippings included in the stories and stuff like that, that all, you know, it's kind of like Tolkien in a way, that it just feels real because you can't believe anyone would be insane enough to make <laughs> up stuff in this much detail. The the one thing that, you know, if, if his writing is, is criticized for more than anything else, it, it's often that people feel the prose is too purple and it's, you know, he uses too many adjectives and too many, like, overblown words or whatever. and for the most part, with perhaps the exception of some of his earlier works, and he did mature as a writer for sure as, as he, as he wrote. But, you know, I don't think it's simply a lack of skill or a beginner's, you know, mistake that he's writing the way that he writes. I think it's this sort of conscious decision to emulate the more sort of florid prose that, you know, would have been the kind of stuff that he was reading from, you know, a century before his time, let's say. To me, what, what, what is often thrown around as like the major criticism of his work is, is one of the other pluses I find in his work. I actually quite enjoy that, that writing style. 
You know, another thing that he's, I think he's phenomenal at is, I think he is one of the greats at opening lines to stories. I mean, he has so many memorable opening lines that just immediately hook you. Uh, like, uh, The Outsider, the opening line to that, unhappy is he to whom the memories of childhood bring only fear and sadness. Or um, from The Shunned House, the opening line to that is, from even the greatest of horrors, irony is seldom absent. I mean, I just, I love that, you know, all, uh, or, um, you know, the, the, the famous uh, opening line to the Call of Cthulhu, the most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. And, and then the color out of space, which is a great story, that opening line, it, it's not the sort of an opening line like the ones I just read, which are sort of that just like they grab you with that one sentence. But I think it's an opening like two or three lines that just capture one of the other things that I love about Lovecraft, which is just the sort of landscapes and settings that he creates. This old sort of overgrown uh, New England that is just, you know, ripe with hidden horrors. And th these opening lines from Colorado Space, I think, just encapsulates that, where it says, West of Arkham, the hills rise wild. And there are valleys with deep woods that no axe has ever cut. There are dark, narrow glens where the trees slope fantastically and where thin brooklets trickle without ever having caught the glint of sunlight. On the gentle slopes, there are farms, ancient and rocky, with squat, moss-coated cottages, brooding eternally over old New England secrets in the lee of great ledges. But these are all vacant now, the wide chimneys crumbling and the shingled sides bulging perilously beneath low gambrel roofs. He paints these pictures. I mean, it's like that, that story and, and the, uh, the Dunwich Horror and so many others where you just, I, I, my memories of those settings in, in some ways are every bit as powerful as my memories of the stories of the characters. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, but I mean, now we've talked about how much we love Lovecraft. I guess we should talk a little bit about some of the criticisms of this work. I mean, you mentioned some people will say his prose style is too florid and certainly. Uh, particularly if you read his letters. I guess we should mention he has lots and lots of letters, but he's, I think, one of the most well-documented human beings to ever live because yeah. he has so many letters. You can basically know what he was doing on, on any day of his life. Yeah, and we're not just talking. You know, I mean, I literally think the number is something like 120,000 letters or something like that. It's a crazy number. And they're not just, you know, like a little note on a, on a cocktail napkin. Some of them are like essays in and of themselves. Yeah, and, and they've actually, they've started publishing them, you know, and it's like six volumes or eight volumes yeah. of his selected letters. I mean, you know, just, there's tons of this stuff. But like one of the drawbacks of having this much personal correspondence of Lovecraft is that there's plenty of examples of him saying not very nice things about different groups yes. of people. And that comes through in his fiction sometimes, but it comes through much more clearly in his letters. I've, I have friends who've tried to read these collected letters and they just say that yeah the, I, I have them too the the anti-semitism and and stuff just uh is pretty hard Yeah, when you come across those passages which thankfully are few and far between uh for the most part but when you do come across them they're they definitely take you aback do you know the story about his marriage yeah he met the woman who became his wife sonia green i believe at a sort of gathering of literary types and she was about 10 years older than him and much more outgoing which isn't saying much <laughs> considering he was about the most uh, the least outgoing person imaginable 
but they something clicked be- between them, I guess. And uh, you know, this person who, as far as we can tell, Lovecraft was more or less asexual <laughs> up until meeting her. They decided to get married after a, a year or two of sort of courtship and. I think Sonia, perhaps rightly so, realized she needed to get Lovecraft out from under the influence of what was then, you know, his two aunts that he was living with who had become sort of the surrogate for his, his mother who had passed away. And, and also broaden his horizons and get him out of Providence for, for a change. And they moved into Brooklyn with disastrous consequences for Lovecraft, who just hated it. Yeah. And so he wrote stories like Horror at Red Hook. I don't know what you would call the opposite of a love letter, but that story is it. (laughs) And then, so Sonia, somehow she had to move to get a job somewhere else, right? Yeah, I think to Cleveland, if I'm not mistaken. And he just was having none of that because he still needed, I think, sort of a lifeline to get to feel as though he had a quick train ride back to Providence in, in some sort of a psychological emergency if he ever needed that to go back to the womb, so to speak. And I think he just felt like it wasn't going to be as accessible or something from where, where Sonia wanted to move. And so he just said, no, I can't. And, and so he actually stayed on alone in, in Brooklyn for a year or so after that and just basically went on a downward spiral and eventually had to leave mm-hmm. and go back to Providence. I mean, I think, I think a, a lot of his problematic, to, to say it euphemistically, um, a lot of his problematic views on uh, race and on immigrants and, and whatnot. I think, you know, a lot of it was basically an outgrowth of his incredibly sheltered existence and his sort of, as I mentioned earlier, his sort of backward looking nostalgia for the past. I mean, anything, whether it was changing the spelling of words or changing architecture or changing what, what have you, or changing the makeup of the people around you, you know, he, he really found it deeply disturbing to see an influx of immigrants coming into New York City, coming into the, the country. His views on all of that did soften up a little bit toward the end of his life, I think, as he did start to become more well-traveled. He actually started to, to love travel in his later later years and started to travel all over the country and even into Canada. And you, you do start to see a bit of a maturing of him in terms of his views on on race. I mean, he still, you know, it was appalling when you read the things he's saying, but it was less appalling in his letters by that point. And it's sort of, you know, for, uh, for many reasons, it's a shame that he had to die as young as he did. I mean, it would have been great to see. He was also at sort of the pinnacle of his writing prowess. I think at that point it would have been great to see what other works he could have produced. But also, you know, I think he was actually for the first time in his life, maybe starting to grow up. But yeah, so I mean, as you said, he died somewhere around the age of 50, I guess of um intestinal cancer i think yeah some some sort of bowel or stomach intestinal cancer, um, yeah. possibly exacerbated by years of poor <laughs> diet and yeah eating cans of beans basically is what he was subsisting on for years because he was literally surviving on pennies a day mm-hmm. but then as we mentioned his friends kind of got together and started arkham house to to get his work into print in in book form mm-hmm. chief among them august derleth who has kind of a a checkered reputation, I gather, among <laughs> Lovecraft aficionados for sort of, I mean, he did a good job getting the stuff into print, but he took a bunch of Lovecraft's half-finished stories and finished them himself in ways right. that a lot of people feel were not really uh, true to the spirit of, of Lovecraft. 
to me, his, his biggest transgression was adding the element of evil back into the works. The Derlithian uh, heresy basically <laughs> was making those stories be sort of good versus evil. I, I think there were, you know, it's sort of in a very Judeo-Christian tradition, which was wholly absent from Lovecraft's own work. Well, and adding this stuff about the Greek elements of, you know, earth, air, water, fire, and sure, that sy- as well, systematizing yeah. the stuff that the whole thing that makes it scary is that it's not predict it doesn't follow rules and it's not yes. predictable. I think another thing I think that makes him revolutionary is that he sort of took horror and combined it with science fiction and particularly toward mm-hmm. the the end of his career the the works become more and more thinking about the cosmos thinking about outer space thinking about aliens and other dimensions and you know so it's not just like within the horror field that I think he has this influence but I do think like X-Files and stuff like that grows out of his work. All right, cool. So why don't we talk about, speaking of uh, that, why don't we talk movies and TV shows and stuff like that that's been influenced by Lovecraft. As Mike Mignola mentioned, it's a mixed bag at best when you start talking about Lovecraft adaptations. Well, unfortunately, most of the adaptations up until fairly recently were sort of done somewhat tongue-in-cheek as kind of, you know, B-movie almost comedic takes on, on the stuff. You're talking about, say, Reanimator or In the Mouth yeah, of yeah. Madness? Yeah, that kind of stuff, I mean. Um, so, so Lovecraft has this story called Herbert West Reanimator, which I think, wasn't it? It must have been serialized in a magazine or something, because it's these, it was, um, yes. sort of vignettes uh, mm-hmm. that each end with, you know, this guy in college, his roommate or something, uh, just is doing experiments and reanimating dead tissue. Sort of, a, you mm-hmm. know, it's like, what if uh, Dr. Frankenstein was your roommate? And each of these little vignettes ends with some revelation about some something that Herbert West has brought back to life. I mean, to be fair to the filmmakers, that's a really goofy story. Uh, I mean, it's a very intentionally humorous story, I think. Yeah, but the movie, they do take, you know, they sort of dial it up to 11 on the, uh, the those kind of okay. B-movie aspects of it. I think there's actually a lot to like in John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. Yeah, that's the one with Sam... Uh, Sam Neill, yeah. Sam Neill, yeah. Gosh, it's been so long since I've seen that. The premise of that one basically is that there's an author. He's It's kind of like, he's more Stephen King than... Well, he's kind of like Stephen King meets H.P. Lovecraft. But there's mm-hmm. this best-selling horror writer, and anyone who reads his new book goes insane. And now they're going to turn it into a movie. So Sam Neill is determined to stop this from happening because, uh, you know, not that many people read books. So it's a... You know, it's a controllable problem when only people who read books are going insane. But if it comes out as a movie, then everyone's going to go insane. And right. so he uh, tries to track down this author uh, and ends up going to a kind of Providence-type uh, New England village. And uh, there's a lot of really goofy stuff in that movie. But there's some pretty cool stuff, too. I mean, I think one of the... Most interesting, uh, and actually probably one of the best adaptations I've seen is, I guess it was about seven years ago, the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society did a film version of The Call of Cthulhu, which, you know, if you've read that story, it almost seems like it's one of these unfilmable sort of stories, because it's mostly these, you know, a collection of letters and newspaper clippings and accounts and interviews all kind of linked together. Sort of 
But what they did was they filmed it as though it were a 1920s silent film that would have been something that Lovecraft himself might have gone to see because Lovecraft was a, a huge, actually uh, a huge film buff. But it's great. I mean, it's like a full blown silent film, you know, with the little the, the cue cards with the, the you know the, the the dialogue and whatever. And I think we'd be remiss not to mention the uh, H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival that happens every year. I, I've actually never been to it myself. One of these years, I'd love to go. But you know, I, my sense is that. The films that are presented there are often a mixed bag too, but you do tend to get some of the better ones rising to the top there. And they are actually, a lot of them are now available on DVD. A lot of the films that were presented at that film festival, and there's some real gems in there. I mean, they did a, a great adaptation of Cool Air, which is one of my favorite Lovecraft stories. And then there's another film that they did called Out of Mind, the stories of H.P. Lovecraft. It splices interviews with H.P. Lovecraft being portrayed by an actor named Christopher Heyerdahl, who, for my money, you know, basically is H.P. Lovecraft. I mean, if you, if you've seen this movie, it's just amazing. It's like he gets the physicality of Lovecraft down so well. To me, it's like I'm watching, you know, lost footage of Lovecraft. And so it splices these interviews with him with sort of little vignettes and scenes from some of his uh, stories and kind of links it all together into this uh, interesting narrative. These DVDs are out there. I think they're put out by um, Lurker Films. And we should mention, you know, there's this documentary called Lovecraft, Fear of the Unknown. They just came out a couple of years ago, and it's quite good and has interviews with all sorts of people, and Neil Gaiman and John Carpenter and Guillermo del Toro and Robert M. Price. Yeah. And yeah. There's actually this uh, video on YouTube I really like. It's a sort of animated adaptation. It's only a couple minutes long of The Terrible Old Man. And it's just really good. I they I wish they would do more of those. I haven't been following up on this recently. I know there was all this talk and whatnot of Del Toro doing an At the Mountains of Madness movie. Is that still in the works or has that been scuttled or what? Uh, last I heard it had been scuttled. Yeah. Too bad. <laughs> Although I have to say it's, it's interesting. That's actually, that's often cited as like, oh, one of the truly great Lovecraft stories. And that's definitely not one of my top favorite Lovecraft stories by any means. I mean, I actually think that that one actually suffers for its length. I think it kind of goes on too long. I mean, I think if it, if it had been half its length, it would have been much stronger. But be that as it may, I would have loved to have seen it on film. You know, in, in the hands of a, a truly great filmmaker with a you know Hollywood, you know, a big budget. I know there's an from the '70s. I think there's a a movie of the Dunwich Horror starring Dean Stockwell, which I have not seen. I guess just speaking of the of the Dunwich Horror, you know, there's this other there's this podcast called the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast, and that's worth checking out. I mean, they have like a hundred episodes. They basically do each story in order, and they have you know one episode or three episodes each devoted entirely devoted to to each story. And <clears throat> I actually I, I listened to a bunch of them, and I I kind of gave up on it. I I felt like they were just making too there were just too many dumb jokes for my taste, but. It's a very popular podcast, so it's certainly you know worth uh, looking into. Maybe you might like it more than I do. But they there was one I, they did one on the Dunwich Horror, and they had Robert M. Price come on as a guest, and mm -hmm. uh, and he's fantastic talking about Lovecraft. So I mean that's one episode that's definitely worth checking out. Well, how about I mean there are all sorts of Lovecraftian anthologies coming out all the time. Do you ever read mm -hmm. those, or uh, what do you think about fiction Lovecraftian fiction written by people other than Lovecraft? Yeah, I mean, I try to read new anthologies like that when they come out. I mean, I just, you know, 
there were some great stories in the recent Ellen Datlow Lovecraft Unbound anthology in particular. There was a story by Michael Sisko that really blew me away in there. Uh, I actually heard him read it not once, but twice and, and at two different venues. And even the, uh, the second time reading it, it just completely gave me the creeps. <laughs> what you don't like to see is where it's just nothing more than pastiche where everyone you're throwing in a little pinch of this, a pinch of that, a cup of this. And it's like, you're just adding all the elements and mixing, you know, but when it's actually something that's really drawing from and inspired by the, the sort of deeper ideas that Lovecraft is playing with. And some of those kind of stories can be fantastic. I mean, and again, it's, it's something that Lovecraft encouraged people to do even in his own lifetime. And so. Yeah. I mean, I actually wrote my own Lovecraft inspired story just out of college, I guess. And mm-hmm. uh, I submitted it to this anthology called Dead But Dreaming. The company ended up going out of business the week the book was released. So they only mm-hmm. printed 75 copies of this book. But then it turned out to be a, a terrific anthology. And, you know, sort of word went around among collectors that this was a really good book. And so copies of it were selling for $400 and stuff. And, and they, re- they finally did reprint it maybe 10 years later. So if you can get a, your hands on that, there's some really good stories in there. I mean, I, I'm guilty of it myself. I, I, you mentioned at the beginning of the broadcast, like the story that I had in Black Static was actually a Lovecraft-inspired story. I mean, it's a little different. It's, it's, it, it sort of was a, a vignette of the, the last days of his life when he's sort of dying in the hospital of, of the intestinal cancer. But it's interspersed with these sort of dream visions that he's having that pulls from his mythos. And uh, yeah, I, had a lo- I, I had a lot of fun writing that. And it was, uh, I, I think it was successful as a story. I think yeah, no, that was great. Was. You read that at Lunacon or something one year. I might have. Yeah, I probably did. And, and I've, done, I've done a few others. I mean, I, 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 there was a, a, an anthology that came out uh, a few years back called The Book of Tentacles. And uh, I had a story in there set in the Orkneys, which, you know, invo- did involve tentacles. <laughs> in, in a way, it's sort of like, who out there that's writing horror fiction hasn't done that? I mean, you know, Neil Gaiman's done it. Stephen King's done it. All, all these people have done it. Uh, Robert Block. The list goes on and on, you know. Yeah, so I guess like the big anthologies I can think of in the time I've been paying attention, there was John Pellin's Children of Cthulhu. Uh, I remember reading China Mayville's details in there. That really blew me away, mm-hmm. which is ba- it's sort of a, a reimagining almost of um, the music of Eric Zahn, where you have somebody kind of trapped in an apartment, assailed by supernatural monsters, and they refuse to leave the apartment because that's the only way they can be safe. Then there was the Book of Cthulhu from Nightshade Books. Paul Garan just had one called New Cthulhu, which was reprinting some of the top stories from the past decade and my Lovecraftian stories in there. Check it out. And yeah, I mean, we should mention Laird Barron is really, I think, one of the mm-hmm. one of the yeah. heirs to Lovecraft writing right now. I mean, uh, Livia Llewellyn um, had a her anthology that was just nominated for the uh, Shirley Jackson Award this past year. She's got a story in that, Take Your Daughter to Work. That's a Lovecraftian story. There, um, Stephen Jones, uh, the British editor, he, he's put out a, a few anthologies um, in recent years, Lovecraft anthologies. Well, and I know Chaosium has put out just tons and tons of... Oh, yeah. They have that whole series. That's the company that does the um, Call of Cthulhu pen and paper role-playing game. Yeah, there's a, there's a whole... And like each of those anthologies focuses on a, a different entity from the mythos. And it's like, you know, a bunch of stories about... Cthulhu or about Yogg-Sothoth or about Dagon or about what have you. 
There's actually this guy on Amazon, one of the customer reviewers named Matthew T. Carpenter. And I think <laughs> he only reads and reviews Lovecraftian fiction. I think last time I looked, he had like three or 400, you know, books he had reviewed, all of which are Lovecraft books, you know. Right. Well, which says something right there that there's that many out there for him to review. Mm -hmm. The Black Stone by Robert E. Howard is one of my favorite mythos stories. And, you know, all the ones by Clark Ashton Smith and, and like Frank Belknap Long. Uh, actually, uh, yeah. Brian Lumley I like a lot, too. He's Oh, yeah, sure. I think it's really interesting just thinking of Brian Lumley and, uh, and Ramsey Campbell and people like that, how people from different countries, they all have their Lovecraftian fiction set in their particular mm -hmm. country. So, you know, not only are the, you know, the fish monsters off the coast of Massachusetts, but they're also off the coast of Wales or off the coast yeah, of Spain yeah. or, or whatever. Yeah, about, about six or seven years ago, there, were, there was the first in a series of English translations of Japanese mythos stories that came out. The first one was called Night Voices, Night Journeys, Lairs of the Hidden Gods, Volume 1. Um, and I know that they've come out with at least one other, if not two other volumes since then. Um, they were edited by uh, Asamatsu Ken, and there's an in introduction to this volume by Robert M. Price. And another um, publisher that's done a lot of Cthulhu anthologies, and at one point they were doing a magazine as well, is uh, Elder Science Press, which is run by uh, William Jones. Uh, they used to do the Book of Dark Wisdom, which was a magazine that published mythos stories, but they've done, you know, recently they had an anthology called High Seas Cthulhu, Swashbuckling Adventures in the Mythos. Did you read that historical Lovecraft anthology? That seems like the perfect book for you. Yeah, you know, I didn't. Who, who published that again? Uh, it's Innsmouth Free Press, edited by Sylvia Moreno-Garcia and Paula R. Stiles. Yeah, I don't know how that one ended up off my radar, but I only found out about it recently. Uh, there was also a future Lovecraft anthology I saw. I mean, I guess the the possibilities are endless. I mean, we mentioned uh, the Chaosium and the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. Did you ever play that, or did you ever play any Lovecraft kind of games? The only time I ever did was uh, one night when I was at Clarion. Will Ludwigson brought... What is it called? A call, a, a call of Cthulhu. I don't know. Do they call them modules? That's yeah, what they yeah. call them in Dungeons and Dragons. Um, but yeah, and we, we did that one night and it was a lot of fun. It was great, actually. We were a Boy Scout troop investigating this haunted house. <laughs> so yeah. There's this game called, this board game called Arkham Horror that all my board game friends play a lot. I know there have been some video games as well, but I, you know, again, I just. Yeah, there, well, there was the Call of Cthulhu, um, Dark Corners of the Earth, first person shooter game. Which, mm -hmm. I mean, that came out kind of after I went cold turkey on video games, but I have, I did beat it on YouTube. I don't know mm -hmm. if that's, that's just when you, you know, you don't buy the game, but you just watch somebody play it on YouTube. Oh, okay. Um, okay. And that game, it incorporates too some of the stuff from the role playing game. So you constantly lose sanity throughout the games and the more throughout the game and the more sanity you lose, the more you start hallucinating and hearing voices and, you know, all these sort of weird visual filters affect your field of view and, you know, sometimes you'll see some, see someone and they look like a monster for a couple seconds, but they're actually just a normal oh, person, okay. you know, stuff like that. What do you think about Lovecraft uh, gaining literary respectability and being collected in the Library of America? I mean, I'm all for it. I'm glad that it happened. He certainly was one of the more influential 
writers, you know, at least in terms of the horror field in America and beyond, as we've said now. And I think S.T. Joshi deserves an enormous amount of credit for, I mean, I, I get the feeling that was basically a one-man effort to, you know, that he spent decades sort of lobbying. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. If, I don't know. I, I wasn't aware if he did lobby for that directly or not, but I mean, he certainly, through his life's work and his body of, you know, scholarly work on Lovecraft has kept him in, in the eye, not only as the person who's inspired Plush Cthulhu's, but as someone who is worthy of literary criticism and analysis and scholarly attention. Well, I mean, like, what do you make of Cthulhu as this massive pop culture phenomenon now where you have, I don't know if you've, there's this YouTube series called um, Calls for Cthulhu, is that what it's called? Where people like, like Cthulhu is like a radio call-in show. He does a radio call-in show and people call in and, <laughs> right, you know, right. they're like, Cthulhu, I think my boyfriend might be yeah. cheating on me. Like, what should I do? And he's like, well, that's an interesting question and I will eat your soul. And that's right. his response to every caller. Does any of that diminish the the fear of the stories that when you go back and read Call of Cthulhu and you think of Cthulhu the plush toy and Cthulhu the call-in host? Well, it hasn't diminished it for me. I mean, I, I own a plush Cthulhu. I'm either proud or sad <laughs> to say. And I, uh, you know, I go, I go back and reread his works and they, I, they still give me that, that thrill that they always have, that, that sense of dread. Certainly in this day and age, like everything tends to get overly commercialized at a certain point. But if the work itself is good enough to have inspired that sort of a pop phenomenon, then it's probably going to survive that pop phenomenon. All right, cool. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So Chris, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. And thanks again to Mike Mignola for being our guest today. If you're curious to check out my Lovecraftian short story, The Disciple, which I mentioned in this episode, you can read it on my website at davidbarkirtley.com or listen to it in episode 48 of the Pseudopod podcast. And a big thanks to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Joey Boggs, BG23456, R. Stewart, and Nicholas Rogers. That brings us up to 193 ratings overall, so we're now just seven away from hitting our goal of 200. All right, so that was our show. Thanks to everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.